Hello, and welcome to the Serial Talker podcast. I'm Peter Von Gom, and in this podcast, we are going to talk about the history of the Silk Road. And we're not talking about the ancient Silk Road, which was a trade route back in the Han Dynasty of China. We're talking about the 21st century Silk Road, the Dark Web, and the founder of the Dark Web, Ross Ulbrich, who was arrested and is serving two life sentences in prison for his role in creating this global empire, drug dealing, murder for hire, etc., etc. It's a fascinating story. Let's get right into it. The Rise and Fall of Silk Road. This is from Wired by Joshua Bierman and Tomer Hanukkah. The postman only rang once. Curtis Green was at home, greeting the morning with 64 ounces of Coca-Cola and powdered mini donuts. Fingers frosted synthetic white. He was startled to hear someone at the door. It was 11 a.m., and surprise visits were uncommon at his modest house in Spanish Fork, Utah, a high desert hamlet in the shadow of the Wasatch Mountains. Green ambled over, adjusting his camouflage fanny pack. At 47, his body was already failing him. He was overweight, with four herniated discs, a bum knee, and gleaming white dental implants. To get around, he sometimes borrowed his wife's pink cane. Green waddled to the door, his two chihuahuas, Max and Sammy, following attentively. He peeked through the front window and caught a glimpse of the postman hurrying off. The guy was wearing a U.S. Postal Service jacket, but with sneakers and jeans. Weird, Green thought. Also odd was a van Green noticed across the street, one he'd never seen before, white with no logos or rear windows. Green opened the door. It was winter, a day of high clouds and low sun. A pale haze washed out the white-tipped Spanish Fork Peak rising above the valley. Green looked down. On the porch sat a priority box, about Bible-sized. His little dogs watched him pick up the mystery package. It was heavy, had no return address, and bore a postmark from Maryland. Green considered the package and then took it into his kitchen, where he tore it open with scissors, sending up a plume of white powder that covered his face and numbed his tongue. Just then, the front door burst open, knocked off its hinges by a SWAT team wielding a battering ram. Quickly, the house was flooded by cops in riot gear and black masks, weapons at the ready. There was Green covered in cocaine and flanked by two chihuahuas. On the floor, someone yelled. Green dropped the package where he stood. When he tried to comfort his pups, a dozen guns took aim. Keep your hands where we can see them. Officers cuffed Green on the floor while fending off Max, the older chihuahua, who bared his tiny fangs and bit at their shoelaces. Splayed out on the carpet, Green was eye-level with dozens of boots. A large tactical team, SWAT and DEA agents, fanned out through the house. He could hear things crashing, some officers yelling, others whispering to each other. He looked at the busted door and thought, Man, 
That thing was unlocked. On the living room wall hung family photos, his wife Tanya, their two daughters, and a grandson, smiling brightly above green, lying amid $27,000 worth of premium flake. The package was stamped with a red dragon, the symbol for high-quality Peruvian. Over the whole scene was a needlepoint that said, If I had known you were coming, I would have cleaned up. Excited by the company, little Max stopped shaking just long enough to crap right in the living room. The fact was, Green wasn't just your average Mormon grandpa. Over the past few months, he had been handling customer service for the massive online enterprise called Silk Road. It was like a clandestine eBay, a digital marketplace for illicit trade, mostly drugs. Green, under the handle Chronic Pain, had parlayed his extensive personal narcotics knowledge, he'd been on pain meds for years, into a paying gig working for the site. Silk Road was hidden in the so-called dark web, a part of the internet that's invisible to search engines like Google. To access Silk Road, you needed special cryptographic software. Combining an anonymous interface with traceless payments in the digital currency Bitcoin, the site allowed thousands of drug dealers and nearly one million eager worldwide customers to find each other and their drugs of choice in the familiar realm of e-commerce. For a brief time from 2011 to 2013, it was a wild success. In that relatively short span, Silk Road managed to rack up, depending on how you count, more than $1 billion in sales. Which is why Green found himself surrounded by an interagency task force. He had been hired by Dread Pirate Roberts, the mysterious figure at the center of Silk Road. DPR, as he was often called, was the proprietor of the site and the visionary leader of its growing community. His relatively frictionless drug market was a serious challenge to law enforcement, who still had no idea who he or she was, or even if DPR was a single person at all. For over a year, agents from the DEA, the FBI, Homeland Security, the IRS, the Secret Service, and U.S. Postal Inspection had been trying to infiltrate the organization's inner circle. This bust of Green and his chihuahuas in the frozen Utah desert was their first notable success. The feds got Green on his feet. They had a lot of questions, starting with why he had $23,000 cash in his fanny pack and who was on the other end of the encrypted chat dialogues on his computer. Green said, improbably, that the money was his tax return. He also asked for his pain medication. Instead, they escorted him to the door and into a squad car, informing him that he'd be booked for possession of 1,092 grams of cocaine with intent to distribute. Don't take me to jail, Green pleaded. He knows everything about me. Later under interrogation, Green told the skeptical agents that to charge him and make his name public was a potential death sentence. Dread Pirate Roberts was dangerous, he said. This guy's got millions. He could have me killed. Ross Ulbrich was deep into his regular drum circle 
when he spotted her. As Ross slapped the hide on his djembe, a West African drum, Julia Vi sat across the circle. She had a head full of curls, light brown skin, and dark brown eyes. The drum circle was assembled on a lawn at Penn State, where in 2008, Ross was working toward a master's degree in material science and engineering. Julia was 18, a free-spirited freshman, and when she noticed Ross, she felt a powerful attraction. Not long after, Julia visited Ross's campus office, where they couldn't help but kiss and fall into a carnal heap on the floor. Both were smitten. Ross studied crystallography, working on thin film growth. One day he made a large, flat blue crystal, affixed it to a ring and gave it to Julia. She had no idea how her boyfriend could make a crystal, but she knew she was in love. Ross had grown up in Austin, Texas, and had always been smart and charming. He'd been the kind of kid who was an Eagle Scout and let his friends give him a mohawk on a whim. He was raised in a tight family. They'd spend summers in Costa Rica. Ross's parents had built a series of rustic, solar-powered bamboo houses there, near an isolated point break where Ross learned to surf. In high school, Ross Man, as friends called him, drove an old Volvo, smoked plenty of pot, and still got a 1460 on his SATs. To friends, Ross was carefree, but also caring. Ross earned a scholarship at the University of Texas at Dallas and majored in physics. From there, he landed a graduate scholarship at Penn State, where he excelled as usual. But he wasn't happy with the drudgery of lab research. Since college, he'd been exploring psychedelics and reading Eastern philosophy. At Penn State, Ross talked openly about switching fields. He posted online about his disenchantment with science and his new interest in economics. He'd come to see taxation and government as a form of coercion enforced by the state's monopoly on violence. His thinking was heavily influenced by Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, a totem of the modern American libertarian orthodoxy. According to von Mises, a citizen must have economic freedom to be politically or morally free, and Ross wanted to be free. When he finished his master's in 2009, he moved back to Austin and bought Julia a plane ticket to join him. She left school, and they got a cheap apartment together. It was cramped, but they were young and dreamy. Both imagined they might get married. Ross tried day trading, but it didn't go well. He started a video game company. That failed too. The setbacks were devastating. He didn't want to be trying. He wanted to be doing. During this time, his downstairs neighbor, Donnie Palmertree, invited Ross to work with him on Good Wagon Books, a business that collected used books and sold them in digital storefronts like Amazon and Books a Million. Ross built Good Wagon's website, learned inventory management, and wrote a custom script that determined a book's price based on its Amazon ranking. In his spare time, Ross read, hiked, improved his yoga, and, as Julia fondly recalls, had lots and lots of great sex. But they also argued about politics. She was a Democrat, 
money, what he called frugal she called cheap, and their social life. She partied more than he did. Their relationship turned stormy with frequent breakups. In the summer of 2010, they split up yet again. He was heartbroken, later telling a woman he met on OkCupid how he'd recently been in love and was trying to get over it. Ross was adrift. I went through a lot over the year in my personal relationships, he wrote in a journal on his computer, a kind of self-assessment of life goals. I had left my promising career as a scientist to be an investment advisor and entrepreneur and came up empty-handed. Ross felt ashamed, but not long afterward, Palmer Tree got a job in Dallas, leaving good wagon to Ross. For years, all he'd wanted was to be in charge of something. Now he was. In the good wagon warehouse, Ross oversaw five part-time college students sorting, logging, and organizing the 50,000 books on shelves he built himself. That December was Goodwagon's best month, clearing 10 grand. But by the end of 2010, the new CEO of Goodwagon was looking beyond the book business. During his forays into trading, Ross had discovered Bitcoin, the digital cryptocurrency. The value of Bitcoin based only on market factors unattached to any central bank, aligned with his advancing libertarian philosophy. On his LinkedIn page, Ross wrote that he wanted to use economic theory as a means to abolish the use of coercion and aggression amongst mankind. To that end, Ross had a flash of insight. The idea, he wrote in his journal, was to create a website where people could buy anything anonymously with no trail whatsoever that could lead back to them. He wrote that he'd been studying the technology for a while, but needed a business model and strategy. Like most libertarians, Ross believed that drug use was a personal choice. And like all people paying attention, he observed that the war on drugs was a complete failure. The natural merchandise for his new enterprise would be drugs. I was calling it underground brokers, Ross wrote, but eventually settled on Silk Road. Ever the capable scientist, Ross decided to cultivate his own psilocybin mushrooms as a starter product. He was spending time with Julia again, while struggling with programming his site and still running Goodwagon. Then, one night in early 2011, Goodwagon collapsed. In the literal sense. Ross was working late, alone in the warehouse, when he heard an enormous crash, the sound of the library falling apart. He'd carefully designed the entire system, but had somehow forgotten two vital screws, the ones that held it all together. The shelves came down, every single one, like dominoes. When Ross broke the news to Palmer Tree, he also admitted that his heart wasn't in good wagon anymore. They agreed to close the company with no hard feelings. He told Palmer Tree that he already had a new business idea, something really big. Silk Road went live in mid-January 2011. A few days later came the first sale, then more. 
Ross eventually sold all ten pounds of his mushrooms, but other vendors started joining. He was handling all the transactions by hand, which was time-consuming but exhilarating. It wasn't long before enough vendors and users made it a functioning, growing marketplace. Just before the launch, facing a new year and a blank slate, Ross had resolved to change his life. In 2011, he wrote to himself, I am creating a year of prosperity and power beyond what I have ever experienced before. Silk Road is going to become a phenomenon, and at least one person will tell me about it, unknowing that I was its creator. Special Agent Carl Mark Force IV was half asleep when the postal inspector started talking about something weird in the parcel sorters. Just want to let everybody know about this, the inspector said, delivering his brief to a conference room full of bored law enforcement personnel. We're having problems with drugs coming through the mail. Force was a Baltimore-based DEA agent, and he was at a regional interagency meeting, a periodic intel show-and-tell with analysts from the FBI, the DEA, the IRS, and Homeland Security. It's coming from an underground drug site, the inspector said, called Silk Road. Force sat up. This was the kind of thing he was looking for. He had burned out on the grind of arresting street dealers. At six feet and 200 pounds, Force was an athletic guy, and coming up through the agency, he'd loved the physical thrill of bursting through a door at 6 a.m. in Doc Martens and a tactical vest, clearing some broke-down row house on some broke-down block, and catching some dealer in the bathroom, cuffing the guy before he could wipe his ass. But after countless raids, the adrenaline had worn off. And in the grand scheme of things, who cared about confiscating a few grams? He was pushing 50 and still on the federal payroll in a regional office. That's when you want to find a big case and get out. And so he went looking for leads in meetings like this, which were mostly yawners. Until now. By the time Force heard about Silk Road, it had been around nearly a year. The site was modeled, sensibly, on Amazon and eBay. And that's what it looked like. A well-organized community marketplace, complete with profiles, listings, and transaction reviews. Everything was anonymous, and shipments often went through the regular old postal service. No need for fake names. You use your real address, and if anyone asks, you just say, you didn't order all that heroin. Silk Road's Seller's Guide had helpful instructions on how to vacuum seal or otherwise hide drugs to evade electronic sensors or canine olfactories. Most shipments made it to happy customers. That the small percentage of intercepted Silk Road packages represented an uptick spoke to the quickly rising volume of the site's trade, a vast pharmacopoeia covering dozens of categories with 13,000 listings. It was a colorful smorgasbord of every type of connoisseur. Fish-scale Colombian cocaine, Afghan number no. 4 heroin, strawberry LSD, caramello hash, Mercury's famous uncut cocaine flakes, Mario Invincibility Star XTC, white Mitsubishi MDMA, a black tar heroin called the Devil's Licorice.
Then there were the prescription meds, everything from Oxycontin and Xanax to fentanyl and Dilaudid. Silk Road's product descriptions and user ratings amounted to an encyclopedic information source. Can't feel my face, said one product, has a nice shine and provides a rush of euphoria and confidence. Ivory's review of some crystal MDMA observed that it had a nice fizz and wisp of smoke. The reviews and community standards enforced excellent value and customer service on Silk Road, which brought more users, increasing its reputation further, until Silk Road became the premier destination for digital drug sales. Law enforcement was caught with its tactical pants down. Various agencies had sniffed around Silk Road in the summer of 2011, but gotten nowhere. Force saw potential, but didn't even know where to begin. Months later, in January 2012, he got some good news from his supervisor. Homeland Security was assembling a task force for a full-on Silk Road case. You want in? his boss asked. Before he knew it, Force was at a Silk Road summit where he and 40 other agents picked through donut boxes and watched PowerPoint presentations filled with technical information about nodes and TCPIP layers. Most of the agents' eyes glazed over. But yes, Force wanted in. The task force that formed to take on Silk Road, Operation Marco Polo, was based out of the Baltimore Homeland Security Investigations Office. Another agent showed Force how to navigate Silk Road. He quickly saw that it had a vocal mastermind, the revered figure known as Dread Pirate Roberts. It was a clever touch, borrowing the name from the Princess Bride, in which the pirate was a mythical character inhabited by the wearer of the mask. The idea of a malleable but enduring identity only added to Silk Road's enigmatic appeal. Force was intrigued. Whoever wore this digital mask sat atop a burgeoning empire. Force told his boss that Silk Road was a target of opportunity. But he was unskilled at computers, and he didn't know anything about Bitcoin. So, he decided to learn. Oh man, this is getting so good. I can't wait to read the rest of it. But this is the end of part one. You got to stay tuned for the next part. Be sure and consider subscribing to this weekly podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast, you could always buy me a cup of coffee. Those details are in the description. Also, if you have your own compelling true story you would like me to consider reading, by all means, send me an email. That information is also in this podcast description. Thanks all, and we'll see you again soon. Ciao.